Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 15 to 20. Yet it was kind of you to share. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, good afternoon. Good to see everybody here today. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe it's the weather. It feels dark in here. Uh, a little gloomy. I don't know what it is. Can we just take a moment? It is the holiday season. Can you just look around and just wish each other happy holidays? Uh, just it's happy holidays. You know, it's happy, happy holidays. Uh, whatever it is, it's just that we are in the holiday season. Thanksgiving is gone. Christmas time, you know, let's, uh, let's wish each other a happy holidays. All right. Um, we're looking here again in the passage, and as we go into the season, many churches, they, they start talking about what they call Advent, Advent season, because it's the coming, uh, the expectation of the coming of the birth of Jesus Christ, which they recognize on Christmas Day, traditionally. And so we are sort of looking into that. But I don't know if you guys remember, uh, maybe like, a few weeks ago, we did a sermon series on contentment, and I did three sermons on what Paul describes here in chapter 4 of, of Philippians, what it means to be um, content. I actually have a fourth one, and that's the one I'm doing today, and I did it on purpose because I think the fourth one on contentment leads us to a discussion or an understanding of this time of year. This time of year, we always hear it as it's the season of giving, right? Not just receiving, but the season of giving, and I think that's I think what Paul sort of talks about here in chapter 4, and I did it on purpose after Thanksgiving because that's what we see. There's contentment, and then there's a Thanksgiving that we see with Paul, and that results in a kind of giving that we see described here in Paul, right? If you remember what contentment was, you know, what does it mean to be content? What is Paul's idea of contentment? And he had a contentment in God because, number one, he believed and had confidence that God is sovereign, that he's the provider of all things, so he trusted him, despite whatever he had in his circumstances. For him, Paul meant, for Paul, contentment meant finding a, a kind of independence from circumstances, that, that his contentment wasn't ultimately dependent on what was around him, but something above and beyond. Um, his contentment, we said, was coming from a, a divine source, namely that he really did value the worth of, of this person, Jesus Christ, and that having him gave him a kind of contentment that the world didn't really give. And um, I think that's what we're, we looked at last time, but I want to suggest something else, and I think this is what Paul does. If you understand gospel contentment, if you understand who Jesus is and finding a kind of joy in him and him alone, one of the results, I think Paul wants to say, is that you become a person who's not just preoccupied with yourself, but you're preoccupied now with the concern for others, with the concern for others, right? 
Paul's not talking about being content and says, I'm happy, I'm good, and that does all that matters. But when he's content, when he's thankful, there's something that happens that frees him up to have more concern for others and not just himself. You see, in this passage that Aaron just read for us, um, the, the, word, the, the verse right before verse 15, verse 14, he says this. He says, yet it was a kind thing that you did to share my trouble. And then he begins from verse 15 to the end to talk about what that was, and he uh, concludes chapter 14. But I want you to think about this. Remember this. This is a letter that was sent by Paul to this church in Philippi, sending it for their, uh, I guess, a response to their support. Paul here is a prisoner. He's incarcerated in some kind of apartment in Rome. He's chained to a Roman soldier. He's in a very difficult situation physically. We don't know what his physical needs were at the time, but you could probably imagine it's probably some of the basic needs of life. And so this church in Philippi, they send this man named Epaphroditus who takes all these supplies, food, clothing, perhaps some money, and Epaphroditus comes all the way from Rome to Philippi to give this to Paul. So Paul sends back this letter to them as a thank you note. But you've got to understand, think about this, if you're a church in Philippi, they're going to read this letter, and in this chapter, they're going to read verse 11, and Paul says, I don't have any wants. I've learned to be content. They're going to read verse 12 in this chapter, and Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means. I know and have learned the secret of going hungry and suffering need. They're going to read verse 13 that says that I can endure anything because of the strength of God in me and the Spirit. They're going to read this, and if Paul just ended his letter there, they could have easily concluded, wait a minute, this guy didn't need anything we had sent him, right? He's happy, he's content. It sounds like he didn't really need what we sent him. What a waste. We went out of our way to give him support, and now he writes back and he says, I didn't need it. I didn't want it. God would have provided eventually. I'm satisfied with very little. I live above my circumstances. I'm sustained by divine power. If that's what Paul ended his letter with, it wouldn't really have been a thank you note, would it? So he continues after all of that, and he says in verse 14, yet, but, nevertheless, in spite of this, In spite of the fact that I'm content, in spite of the fact that I'm strengthened by Christ, in spite of the fact that I trust that God will provide, in spite of the fact that I live above my circumstances, he says in verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. It was kind of you to share my trouble. What Paul is saying in that verse, in verse 14, he's not saying, well, it was nice. It was a nice thing. It was, it's more than that. The word kind here in English is translated from the Greek word kalos. The word kalos literally means this. You did something that was beautiful. You did something that was good and noble in every sense of the word. You did something right. You did a lovely and beautiful thing. And what was that that they did? Shared with Paul in his affliction by giving his needs in basic, practical, concrete ways. Now, if you're in church in Philippi, you might be saying, well, that's nice to know. How could it be so beautiful? How could it be so good if you didn't need it? How could it be so wonderful if you said you were so content? In this chapter, in verse 10, 
Paul starts out by saying this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You have revived your concern for me. In verse 10, earlier in this chapter, Paul says he's thankful. He's not only content, now he's thankful. He rejoices. He says, I'm thankful that you have concern for me. But why is he rejoicing? Why is Paul thankful? Two reasons in our passage we tell us, and that's in verse 17. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says this, Not that I seek the gift, the things that he got, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What does that mean? Paul is thankful. He's rejoicing. He's thankful that they have concern for him. Why? Not because of the stuff that he got, but he's thankful because verse 17, he seeks the fruit and the credit. Two words, fruit and credit. What's a fruit? You know what a fruit is. Fruit is the thing that comes from oftentimes a seed, right? A fruit is a result of a seed. A fruit is a byproduct of something. A byproduct of something, really, isn't it? It's the result of the work, the effort, the growth. Those of you who have children, as a parent, um, you know what I'm talking about. You ever try and teach your children something, and you do it again and again because they don't seem to be getting it, right? Whether it's uh, you know, a life truth or whether it's something from school or whether it's teaching them how to play a sport. You, you train them and you keep doing it over and over again, but you, you get frustrated sometimes because they don't seem to be getting it. And so you keep doing it. You keep reminding them. You keep teaching them over and over until one day your kids, something in them just clicks. It clicks, and all that effort and all that work, now they're doing it. Now they're swinging that bat the right way. Now they're handling life situations the right way. Now they're studying the right way. They get it. They finally get it. That's the fruit of all the work and all the teaching that you have done. They get it. Paul is thankful Paul is rejoicing for the Philippians' concern and all the things that they sent to him, not because he got what he really needed from them. It's because he wanted to see the fruit. He was rejoicing because he's saying, they get it. They actually get it. They get all the times I've taught them about this. They get all the things that I've taught them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the gospel a practical, real, tangible, giving out of love and concern, no strings attached, for someone else. That was the fruit of the seed of the gospel which Paul was looking for, and he was so thankful for that, to be able to see that. This is what Paul was praying for for this church all along. Chapter 1 of this, of this book, verse 9, he's praying for them that their love would abound all the more to others. Chapter 2, he prays for them, and, and he gets even more specific. He says in verse 3, don't do anything from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility let each one of you regard one another more important than himself. Don't just look out for your personal interests, but also for the interests of of others. That's what he prayed for this church from the very beginning of this letter. Why? Because for him, it was a fruit of the gospel that he wanted to tell, teach them. You know, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus 
was talking to his disciples. How do you know a disciple? How do you know a false disciple from a true disciple? What does Jesus say? You will know them by their fruit. By their fruit. And so Paul is thankful. He is rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing in verse 10? Not just because his material needs are now being filled, but he rejoiced because he saw in them the fruit that he was looking for and praying for all along. Second reason, or second thing that he was looking for, and why he's so thankful and content, is not just the fruit, but verse 17, it says something weird. He says this, not that I seek the things that I need, but I'm seeking the fruit that does what? Increases to your credit. So the second word is credit. First was fruit. Paul's thankful because he saw the fruit of the gospel. They were giving out of love and concern for someone else, just like he prayed for. And then he says in verse 17, second half, he says, when they do this, they are receiving to their credit. How? I want you to notice that the passage that just, we just read, the language here, there's an economy language that Paul's using. In verse 15, giving and receiving. In verse 17, he uses the word credit. Literally, it means account. In verse 18, I have received what? Full payment. So that word payment, a receipt. There's an economy language of giving and receiving, of of taking and and giving, of payment, right? And uh, of receiving to a credit. Here's the thing. For Paul, at least, there seems to be a connection a relationship between what we do practically and what we do spiritually. Oftentimes, we, we, we divide those two. If something's really practical, we think, well, it's not so spiritual. And other times, we think, well, this is really spiritual, but it's not very practical. Paul doesn't make that separation. There's a connection, a relationship in their practical, material, just giving out of concern, and somehow spiritually receiving from God to their account. What Paul is thinking is this. In their gospel-motivated giving practically to someone, Paul says, at the same time, they are also receiving something to their credit. And I think the economy that Paul is thinking about is radically different from our normal way of thinking. I think what he's saying is this. What you give away in this world, you gain in the next. What you give out of your credit here in this world, you gain to your credit in the next. And that's a different kind of economy, isn't it? Because it's a different kind of giving, and it's also a different kind of receiving. You know, let me ask you a question. Do you, do you always think that when you are the person who's giving something, that you're never receiving? Whether you give money or time or effort or strength or attention, whatever it is that you feel like when you're in that position of giving, did you ever think that you also might be receiving? You know, it, it, sometimes it's frustrating because... Uh, you know, pastors and preachers, they spend so much time on preparing a sermon, and, and sometimes there's no response, right? There's no response, and so you don't really know how it went, and you wonder, 
you know, what's the point? Is it, is it all worth it? Is it all worth it? Because I'm preparing, I'm trying to give, I'm trying to give, but there's no return, right? But who's most blessed? The people listening to a sermon or the preacher preparing it and giving it? Who's more blessed? Is it those people we serve? Or is it the servant? I mean, who's more blessed? If you go to a short-term mission trip, is it those, those, those people you, you do nice things for for a couple of weeks? Or is it those people who go out there and come back and their life is impacted? There's a kind of blessing, of joy, that you only experience, you can only experience as you give. It's a different kind of joy, isn't it? This is what Christian contentment does. Holiday season is here, um, and really, it's a consumption season for, for us culturally. We consume ourselves with food. We consume ourselves with gifts, maybe with clothes, some of us vacations. Uh, oftentimes, we wonder during the holiday season, the world is consumed with consuming, and that's why we see so many sales and so many discounts and so many bargains, and we look for them and so on and so forth. But there's a question that I think Paul wants us to ask. During this time of year, do we rejoice more in the blessings that come to us or do we rejoice more in blessings that come to others? Which one do you rejoice more in? Do you look for ways this time of year especially where you just receive blessings or do you look also for ways where you can be a blessing? Oftentimes that's how we think about it in church. When we come to church, what am I going to get out of it? Can I be blessed? What do I get? And no church is perfect, but here's the thing. If I'm content with Christ, if I'm thankful for everything that he's done for me, the question that arises is this. Can I be a blessing to others? Can I go to church and be a blessing to others? And this is, I think, what contentment in Christ does. Because here you see guy, Paul, who was content because, you see, he wasn't consumed with consuming. He wasn't concerned primarily with what he got. Rather, he was more deeply concerned with the spiritual blessings that came to others. This is why he rejoices when he sees the fruit. You get it. This is the heart of Paul. In his economy of things, he's not interested in just accruing benefits for his own life, but he's interested in accruing eternal dividends to the life of the people he loved. And that kind of economy, I think, comes from an economy of contentment. Okay? The second thing I want us to see here is, is look at, let's look carefully more at the Philippians. Okay? He's thankful for the Philippians because they sent him someone who gave him some stuff, right? It wasn't just that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, Paul tells the church in Corinth exactly how this church gave, right? And he said this in verse 2. He says, In their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, overflowed in wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord. So, in Philippians, Paul's talking about what he received from the Philippian church and as a fruit of the gospel, but what was their giving? If you look at the Philippians, Paul says in the 2 Corinthians, he says, it wasn't just, here's what's left over. 
It wasn't just, uh, here's the, what we give out of the margins of what we have. It wasn't just giving, but according to Paul, it says they were giving according to their means. You know what the word according to means? It means commensurate with, proportionate with what they had. The giving that the church did for Paul wasn't just giving after they bought everything that they wanted to buy. It was the kind of giving that cramped their lifestyle. They were radically generous, even at the expense of their own needs. Now, let's think about this, because I, I think that might challenge us a little bit today. That's kind of scary to think about. If we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, when I give anything, whether it is uh, you know, financial or some material thing, or whether it's time or effort or just patience or whatever it is, when I give, it's usually after I have done for everything else that I do care about first. I give out of my margin, right? So this is kind of giving that's scary to think about. It's hard to fathom. Some of us, it might be risky and dangerous. And yet they were able to do that and experience joy. How? There's no way. Especially in our world today, how does someone give according to, commensurate with, to what they have, everything they have, and even more, beyond. How do we do this? There's no way to be like this all the time. There's no way to live like this in the world because of so much need that we have on our own. And because of inflation, and because of cost of living, and because of taxes and the economy, there is no way that anyone can live by giving away stuff beyond, even beyond their means in today's world. There's no way we could do this today in our culture. Unless, unless you really, really believe that this world is not the only world. Maybe not even the best possible world. Unless you believe that there is more than just physical and material giving and taking here and now. This way of giving, what Paul describes, is impossible unless you believe in the spiritual and in the promise of God and the blessings that he brings. Here's the economy. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How do you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? The answer, and this is hard, you let go of treasures on earth. Proverbs 11.24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and whoever waters himself will be watered. The economy that Paul is talking about is this. You give away, Paul says, you get an increase. I rejoice. I'm thankful for the fruit. You get it. And that fruit to the increase of your credit. You give away, in some sense, you get an increase. But you hoard, then you have nothing. And I'm going to be very honest. Many times we think that what we give away just is going to be a waste. It's going to be a waste because when you give away anything, it's gone. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about our effort, our time, devotion, our commitment. I mean, I see it. We see it all the time in our relationships. Some of us consider our relationships as investments. And unless we get an equal and greater return in the relationship, we just feel like we're not going to invest in it anymore. Why? Because it's a waste of time. 
Oh, I thought we were really close. I thought we could share anything. I thought we were best buds. I did all these things for you, made time for you, but you don't want to do that for me. What a waste of my time. Forget it. That's how things normally work. But Paul's view of things is really different. You know, when we prepare for retirement, we make investments, right? Hopefully to see a return when we're like 70, 80, or 90 years old. But what Paul seems to be doing is this. He's calculating that differently. He's saying this. What if we included not just 70, 80, 90 years of earthly life, but what if we included afterlife? What if we really, really believed what Paul believed, what the Philippians believed, had the same mindset? What if we believed that what we give away from our physical account for his sake and sake of others, we gain to a spiritual account? What if we really took our faith seriously? Then nothing we give away, whether money, time, effort, commitment, devotion, is ever a waste. Everything is an investment towards the riches of God guaranteed for us in the last day. What would your life look like? If you believe that. And what would that mean every day? Every day then we make decisions. Every day we have a decision to make then. Not just with your money, your time, your effort. You've got to decide. You've got to decide whether you want it to be just materially beneficial or you want it also to be spiritually beneficial. You've got a choice to make. You've got to decide whether you want it to be temporarily beneficial or eternally beneficial. You've got to make a choice. What's the better investment? As people of faith, where do you believe is the guarantee of return? You've got to make a choice. how do we get there? How did the Philippians get there? How, how did Paul think Philippians got there? How did they do that? Paul learned contentment. He prays for this church. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Don't look just for your own interest. Look to the interests of others. How do, how do people get like this? Paul was happy. He was thankful. He rejoiced for this church, not because he finally got what he materially needed, but he rejoiced because the Philippians had learned too. They had the same mind he did. He rejoiced, not because they were able to give a lot, but because by their action, Paul knew that they also believed and followed Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, who did nothing out of selfish ambition. In humility, he valued others above himself. He did not look at his own interests, or he would have just stayed in heaven and let everyone go. But he looked out for the best interest of others, even the most wicked, the most sinful, at a great cost to himself commensurate with, according to his own worth. He left the comfort of heaven to meet their need. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, this is why he died. He died for all so that those who still live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was died and raised. And I think because they experienced and they received so much joy and contentment in Christ because their faith trusted in this, they were able to give according to their means. This is how we experience and live out the contentment that God gives. 
How do you get to a place like the Philippians and like Paul? How do you get to live like Jesus did? Now, I know what some of us are thinking. Maybe you're thinking, well, nobody really does that, okay, if you're really cynical, which I would, might disagree. There are people, but more practically, well, if I just keep giving, giving, and giving, because I'm thinking I'm going to get something in return at the end of the day, what if I die of hunger, <laughs> right? What if I have more clothes to live, wear? What if, what, if, what, if, what if I can't pay the bills? What if I can't, you know, pay for my children's education? Like, yeah, what if I go hunger? Here's the answer. He gives it to you in our passage, verse 19. Paul says, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. How did the Philippians give the way they give? Well, because they believe in the gospel, sure. But they trusted in this promise. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Do you see the, do you see the comparison here? How did the Philippians give? Paul says they gave according, commensurate with, proportional to what they had. In Philippians, Paul says God will meet all your needs, what? According to, commensurate, proportional to what God has. The riches of his glory. They trust in the promise that God will meet all their needs, not just a little bit, Right? Not out of his margin, but according to commensurate with in proportion to his riches. And this is what I think Paul is promising. He's saying when God gives to you, he doesn't just give out of his riches a little bit. He gives you according to his riches, his glorious riches. And yes, he's talking about spiritual things, right? But he's also, I think, talking about physical things, physical needs. The chief reason I think that we struggle to live more radical lives, more unconventional lives, is because we're afraid that somehow what my needs are will not go met or will go unmet. Money, time, effort, attention, love, you name it. We struggle to trust this promise. It's a struggle of unbelief. This is what I say all the time. Even if you say you're a Christian, in every Christian, there's a believer, but there's still an unbeliever right? And there's a little bit of unbelief. And sometimes we wonder, will he provide my needs? Will he provide my needs? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he's adequate. But Paul is saying, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches. He's rich. God is rich. And he doesn't just give according to what you need, he gives according to his riches. And out of his riches, how do I know? Because he's already given to you his greatest treasure, and that is his only son, Jesus Christ. If I ask you the question, do you have Jesus? Then you have the most expensive thing that God could ever give you. And if you have him, you know what Romans 8.31 says? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give you all things? 
And so sometimes we have to ask ourselves, the only thing we need to do is this, sometimes we have to ask ourselves, to what degree am I duping myself, am I fooling myself, that some of my needs are actually genuine needs? And sometimes we need more faith and we need to trust. Trust in the promise. Verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of Jesus Christ. It is the season of giving. But we give. We ought to give. The Christians have the most resource to be the best givers because they've been given the most. And when we fall short of that, not only do we fail to show the fruit of what we say we believe, but we fail to show others around us the riches of God who gives to us and the contentment he gives. And so I think that's where we need to pray and ask again to be reminded to know, to work in our hearts and to find the ability to live in a way that is generous, loving, forgiving, merciful, especially this time of year. Let's pray.